The internet is crammed full of information, some of which is educational, some of which is entertaining, and some of which is unexplainable, according to those who write it. Shipped High in Transit is a podcast that aims to investigate unexplained phenomena and present the evidence and facts with the objective of proving or disproving those urban legends from around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Shipped High in Transit, the podcast where we debunk popularly held beliefs and stories. The show is based on a conversation we had a while back where our friend Ira said that the word shit was an acronym for shipped high in transit because the methane released from wet manure being transported by ship caused explosions and to stop this, S-H-I-T was printed on the sides of the containers so they stayed dry. This turned out to be untrue and so the idea was born to have a show devoted to this subject. Each episode will usually encompass two hosts who will bring a story each which has either been debunked or is unexplained. These are split by listener interactions and quick shits, which are bite-sized debunkings, which can be expanded upon in later episodes if they prove to be interesting enough or are voted for by you, the listener. Hello. I am Tom, and later on I will be talking about the death of John Merrick, the Elephant Man. Joining me this week is Stephen from the History of Misunderstanding film podcast. Hello. Hello there. Thanks Um, for having me on. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Uh, You are the very first of our uh, of our guest hosts. We are we are very we're very pleased to have you along for the ride. Well, it's my um, my privilege to be the first one, obviously. Well, yeah, and you're always going to be the first one, being one of the most, you know, notable, uh, <laughs> notably uh, well-educated and uh, avuncular of the podcast, of the PodPal community. Well, I'm not sure that's the usual um, verbiage that's applied to me, but there you go. I, I'm usually called worse names. <laughs> so but thank you anyway. No problem. And what are we going to be hearing from you about? Um, I'm going to be discussing the mystery of crystal skulls. I see, righto. I don't know very much about crystal skulls, so um, if we just get straight into the history of the crystal skulls, that'd be great. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, crystal skulls have come more into popular culture lately, um, particularly with the um, most recent Indiana Jones film, The um, Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. Yeah, that's and... pretty much where I know, where I got most of my information. Well, the only reason that I know of Crystal Skulls, I think, is that um, is that film. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've appeared in other films and, and TV series, you know, Stargate, A-Team, and even been the um, inspiration for a, a vodka made by Dan Aykroyd, and for you know, the Diamond Skull that Damien Hirst made, oh, yeah. that was by the um, by the crystal skulls as well. So, I mean, what's what's not generally understood about them is that, that they're often actually miniaturized skulls rather than full size skulls that you would expect. And they're, they're made from either clear or milky quartz. And the misconception is a lot of the time is that they're actually human sized skulls when they're usually miniaturized in some degree. Okay. Um, so that's when you see them in films. A lot of the time, they're actually the size of actual human heads and yeah. that's, that's not what any of them actually are um there's a variety of of ones that have the actual jaw on or don't and etc and, and that's a an, another inconsistency between them all hmm. um but basically the first 
first time they were just being seen was in the um, late 19th century. And that's at the time when the interest in sort of ancient cultures was quite high. Yeah, because um, was it around about the time that people were discovering New World, like South America and stuff like that? Well, yeah, there was there was people that were going and doing all the digs in uh, Egypt, going and digging up all the pharaohs and mm. nicking all their, their valuables and all that kind of stuff and the, the curses and etc. And then, yeah, the, there was a lot of interest in particularly Mesoamerica, as it's called, which is, you know, the Central and, and South American ancient cultures, yeah. the, the Aztecs and the Mayans. Or Mayans, depending on who you are pronouncing it. But yeah, the, the the crystal skulls came to light, and they were purported to have been pre-Columbian, um, which means you know before before Columbus got there in 1492. Yeah. So, and you know, on the face of it, there'd be beautiful artisan pieces made by these ancient peoples, but they were they became shrouded in uh, mythology quite early on by people who were involved in that seen and given a, a variety of powers that they were assumed to have such as uh, premonitions and visions and curing cancer and other healing things and sort of darkly supernatural ability to, to curse somebody back that they could die and, and such like and they also in, in time eventually became linked to the completion of the Mayan calendar Okay. Um, the 21st of December 2012, which we remember a bit of hysteria around that that was when the world was going to end. Yeah, so. yeah, we were all a bit scared. It was the next thing after the whole Y2K scare, wasn't it? It was uh, the that, next that big threat. It, yeah, the, you know, people didn't realise that the calendar went in a cycle and that's where the cycle ended and then you went to the beginning again. And then you start again, yeah. It was just, instead of being the end of all things, it was just... Yeah. Right round to the beginning. Thirty first of December had been the end of the world, just because that's how far my calendar goes. It's ridiculous. So, but there was meant to be thirteen schools that were they were they brought together that would stop the, the cataclysm of the end of the world. Okay. Um, although there's never been thirteen of them recorded. So, where the number thirteen came from, apart from the fact that I think that there's thirteen months within the Mayan calendar. Okay. Right. That may be where. It, where there's a tie into the number 13. Yeah, well, there's also 13 is is one of those numbers that kind of it shows up in all different mythologies and religions anyway. I mean, there was obviously the 12 disciples and Jesus. There was, you know, the, the, the number 13 kind of crops up again and again. Yeah, I mean, you've got 13 and you've got three as, as trinities. Mm, they they yeah. pop up all around the world in ancient cultures as far as um, numbers. And, you, and obviously, more importantly, your baker's dozen. Yes, so, yes, and a country mile. <laughs> as far as actually history recording the, the actual facts, the, the first of the skulls um, that appeared was in 1881, which is the one that currently is in the British Museum. Mm. And this appeared in the Paris shop catalogue of an art dealer and, and to some extent treasure hunter called Eugene Bobon. Mm. Um, which is probably not the correct pronunciation of his name, but there you go. <laughs> it's, um, how we're, it's how we're saying it, it's fine. Yeah, could be Bourbon, could be could anything. Could be Bourbon, yeah. But we'll call him Eugene from now on. I think that's probably for the best. Who later on moved to to New York, as it, as it happens, and he, um, he sold the, the skull that he had on to various people, um, and it was exhibited in the American Association of Advanced Science in New York. Later on, went through the hands of the famous um, Tiffany & Co. Mm. company that people know of particularly from the film Breakfast at Tiffany's, uh, they're um, famed. Uh, yes. But eventually it ended up in the British Museum's hands. 
And it was it was later on that Eugene then sold a, another school, which was slightly larger, to a resident in France, right. who then eventually passed that on to um, one of the Prisium museums, which was the Musée du Quai Branly, which is obviously um, not the pronunciation either. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We're not known for our pronunciations. Well, this is it. We should have got somebody French to read these out. But anyway, <laughs> that's immaterial. They can't even pronounce Paris right, can they? They say well, Paris. No. <laughs> so, but um, that was the second one to come to the public knowledge. And then um, the th- I'll come back to the third one that, that came out, but the fourth one was the one that's currently in the Smithsonian Institute okay. in the USA, which didn't actually appear until 1992, mm. which was an anonymous mailed object um, which claimed to be of Aztec origin and, and having been bought in Mexico in the 1960s. And that has been kept in the Smithsonian and, and to some extent it's been been looked at and tested and it's been you know worked out whereabouts in its collection it should reside yeah um and people can go see it there as same as they could go see the ones in paris or in in the british museum but the third skull is the one that's most famous and that's the one that was purported to be discovered by a lady called anna Hmm. who was the adopted daughter of a british adventurer an author called f.a mitchell hedges and this was in 1924 right now as Anna tells it, she found the skull buried underneath a temple altar in British Honduras, which is now Belize, mm. which, as you know, I'm sure, is in Central America, yeah. which is which is not Kansas. That's actually the bit between North and South America. <laughs> <laughs> I know your geography is fine, but other people... Yeah, some people don't get it. It's the, it's the thin bit that connects North America and South America. It is. Very, very well thought, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so Anna wrote about this skull that she'd discovered, and in the 1970s she wrote that she'd been told by some of the remaining Maya that the skull was used by high priests to um, will death upon people, um, as well as in sacrificial rites. And that's why, you know, to some people it became titled the Doom, the Skull of Doom, or the Ooh. Doom Skull. Sounds, um, which like is very... a, sounds like a hybrid Indiana Jones movie on its own. It does, yeah. Maybe that's what the next one's going to be. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, rehash of all the other ones, to, you know, <laughs> Raiders of the Doom Skull. Yeah. Uh, Anna Mitchell Hedges, the uh, the lady who claimed to have discovered it, she she toured with it for years um, on a pay per view basis, and as well as granting interviews about it. And when she eventually died in in two thousand seven, it, it remained in the hands of a, a widowed husband. So um, it's it that's one that's not actually coming to a public museum or anything, unlike the other. Free, but the legends behind the skulls and the attributed powers and the mystery of, of the discovery and things it's all fairly exotic and, and, and mystical if true yeah so i mean if we're looking at the actual truth behind all these things we start examining and, and look at the f- most famous one the um the mitchell hedges skull mm. the um skull of doom um now anna's father frederick mitchell hedges made no mention of this skull in his diary or field reports okay. um Buried expedition in 1924 to British Honduras. So that's a little bit that's... of a blank spot. You'd think really. that he, you know, finding a crystal skull would be something that you would jot down, wouldn't you? You'd jot down in some sense, yeah. yeah. You know, had beans for tea, found a crystal skull. <laughs> but, you know, maybe that page of the diary got lost or, or he was that day and didn't manage to, he was so excited he didn't actually write it down. Who, who knows? Maybe. But some of the other members of this expedition actually have been reported to have, have said that Anna wasn't even on that trip with him. Okay. So that does cast a bit of doubt there. Yeah. Now, it's possible 
that she was just embellishing the story to try and, and bring a bit more notoriety to it and this ancient skull that came into her hands and she, she wanted to try and give it herself a more personal link to it for interviews and stuff. So, yeah. you know, that's possible. You know, you could in some way forgive her that and that not actually distract from what the skulls are. But the fact of the matter is she didn't. Hmm. It was actually bought by Mitchell Hedges okay. um, in 1944 from a London art dealer. Oh, I see. So she didn't quite tell the truth on that one. No. Um, it was documented to be in Sydney Burning's hands from 1936, and, and even Hearsay said it was actually further back in 1933 he was actually uh, in possession of it. I mean, Mitchell Hedges himself actually purchased it and then shortly after wrote to his brother about it. That okay. he'd, um, he bought it. And the Sotheby's auction record that he actually purchased it on the 15th of October 1943. So... She's told a little fib there as the naughty little Anna. Yes, she has, isn't she? But a crystal skull is a crystal skull. True, you know? he's, still, he's still got his hands on it and it was yeah, still yeah. presented. So I mean, he is a, an archaeologist by trade. He knows something of ancient history, obviously, and, and when he was writing about it. And he said that it came from the era of the Mayan and claimed it could be at least 3,600 years old. I see. And this was in his autobiography in um, 1954. So, um, you know, the the last 2% of its lifespan of her muddying the story up, you can kind of just push aside in, in some senses if you want to look at the bigger picture. However, it's really not that accurate for Mitchell Hedges for him to have said that in the first place as a eminent archaeologist that he should have been because the, the dates of Mayan civilization don't quite tally up with that. That would make it too old. Oh, really, do they? <laughs> yeah, they would have been in the very earliest of, of and the most crudest of their civilization, and, and they really didn't reach any heights where they could be doing anything this artistic until their sort of middle period, the classic period, yeah. which was 250 to 900 Christian area rather than all the way back, back then. So, yeah. But then, you know, knowledge of the past was not as good as now with carbon dating and things so True. perhaps he was just being a bit looser with his understanding and and uh, we can accept that he was trying to give it a little bit more kind of providence than it was worth well, perhaps, it, you know? it could have been that they, they hadn't pinned down the, the the civilization quite as accurately we have now obviously in in those times perhaps if you were going to be giving him a little bit of, of lead on that. Mm. But you're still left with these artifacts that are supposedly um, pre-Columbian Mesoamerican and one in three different eminent museums in the world and then one in private hands. Hmm. So there are only four known ones in the world, are there? There are known ones in the world um, that have you know, have, have got this attention. Whether there's others that have been um, brought about elsewhere that people don't really know about, that would be a different case entirely. But hmm. these are the ones that are seen as being part of the set, as it were. Sure. You know, the, the ones, the collector's items, uh, the ones that you'll have got with your bubblegum. Mm -hmm. the, the the tests that were done on the skulls though were um were sort of told a slightly different story okay uh, when they were inspected it, it turned out that the telltale scratch marks grinding on them to make the teeth and and like it was one of the early people who did these tests was saying it, it looked like they've been done with diamonds and such like in order to, to make the incisions and to, to whip it down and, and, and things and that it, it's possibly done over a period of 250 years wow but that is a difficult one to fit in with the access to diamonds for the ancient civilization, really. Mm. Because they had a lot of gold, but not a lot of diamond. No, that's true. Um, 
because that tends to come from Africa. I was going to say diamonds and kind of rubies and emeralds and precious stones is more kind of synonymous with Africa rather than Inca, like the South America, like you say, is more kind of gold. That's exactly right. I mean, the the skulls were examined by the Hewlett-Packard Laboratory okay. um, in California. And am- amongst the tests they did, they managed to find out that they actually weren't a composite of material like they had originally been said, but they're actually from a single piece of, of quartz. Wow. Which is promising towards them being you know, the, the crystal, the, the quartz that was originally said they were, they were made from. So that sort of alludes to to that kind of thing and but the traces of mechanical grinding and such like did bring a bit of a of a question mark yeah because uh, they're quite anatomically correct as well aren't they from what i've seen of them yeah i mean yeah at least two of them are very anatomically correct mm. yeah and you'd need um, you, it leads me to believe you'd need some sort of fairly modern machinery really i don't know whether you could do it by hand well with the detailing it, it would take a, a lot of time i mean you could theoretically have of have used stones and and things over centuries mm. but that would rely upon there being a consistency of artistic talent yeah and ability to continue that on year after year mm. decade after decade century after century yeah because you were saying that uh, the one you were talking about just then was 240 years in the making well that's what they would they had supposed yeah. yeah they tried to examine it using various methods in the Smithsonian, they used ultraviolet light and high-powered microscopes and computerized tomography mm. to sort of try and work out what the what the detailing on it was, how the actually the marks and the, the cuts had been formed, which brought into a, a certain amount of evidence that the crystal had been worked at high speed with hard metal rotary tools. Okay. And abrasives such as diamonds had been probably used mm. and of course pre-columbian contact um civilizations in central and south america it well, was more stone tools wooden tools and just immediately prior to um columbus arriving they had copper tools mm. one of which is really enough to be able to have, have done this in any uh, great way so it kind of puts all of that into a definite doubt yeah to be that the tools just weren't there for this skull that was really found but wasn't found mm. but was bought <laughs> to, to come to light so it it, it it does all put a question on that really i mean one of the abrasives that was used was called carborundum mm. which is a modern abrasive which was only actually discovered in the late 19th century and only really came to any prominence in the early 20th century so that is a definite telltale sign that these weren't actually worked upon by the ancient peoples yeah so and i mean these were claimed to have come from central america all of these schools and of course the the, the crystal that the quartz that they're made out of is actually um, technically chlorite mm. which they only found in madagascar some parts of the alps and very rarely in brazil oh so, okay so it not actually in the area where these skulls were made. I see. So, so it, it's looking more and more just like a bit of a folk story then. Yeah, it looks like somebody has decided to sell them in some Parisian shops. The other factor is that when they've done one of the tests that was done on it was to actually scale up the skull to mm. human size. Mm. And as you've seen on a number of forensic science TV shows and stuff where they put the pegs in the face and they build it out with muscle structure and yeah. turn the face into the, what the person would have looked like just based upon the skull. Yeah. Um, they've actually discovered that the skull is of a young European female. Oh. So that 
would be inconsistent with three and a half thousand years ago in Central America. Not quite the same genetic makeup to make those kind of European features, I guess. Not at all, no. no. That is a, a definite inconsistency. Mm. So if you look at the origin of them and you look at the creation of them and you look at both the tools and the, the substances they're made of and then add in what the people who would have had those skulls would have looked like. It all just points towards they've been made in modern times by somebody in France. French kind of um, crystal cutters or, 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 you know, gem masons or whatever they're called. Gem, gem smiths? I don't know. Yeah, with the diamond tools and, yeah. and drill. Like. So, unfortunately, um, the, the legend of the crystal skulls um, very much just a just legend. Just a legend and not not actual fact i see that's fascinating unfortunately I mean, that one that can be chalked up to as, as a mystery mm, i see because were they ever actually referenced in mayan art or anything like that because i know that they... no um they there are schools that are depicted mm. but they are as we know there was a strong cult of um human sacrifice and, yes. and death and things so the schools were were really um, the value was in the fact that it was actually a human that had been killed for the gods, not it being something that was just a, a, a replica yeah. of human being. So the value was there. That's why you know they didn't value the gold that was made into various objects. It wasn't it wasn't important to them, which is why they they give so much of it away so easily to the to the conquering Spaniards. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, there were there were some death masks and stuff that were made out of, of various substances and things that were that have been discovered and have been accurately dated mm. the ancient civilizations, but no skulls. I see. So it does put it in a in a lot of um, a lot of doubt, and really, it's difficult to find any way to dismiss all of these inconsistencies. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence against it now, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> Especially... the, the happy thing is that. Um, in the Smithsonian and in the um, Frisian Museum and in the British Museum, they are all now displayed as fakes. Oh, really? Okay. I wondered yeah. whether that was uh, the case, whether they'd have to declassify them. Yeah, they've, they've been, they're still displayed in the museum because um, they are examples now of historical fakes, as it were. Oh, I see. The artefacts from the, the late 19th century of fakes that were created. So they've actually now got their own historical merit in a way mm. but not but the not ancient for, historical merit yeah no. not for what they were supposed to N not not the yeah. original story I that's see. it and certainly certainly none for any powers of being able to cure people of cancer or, or wish death upon, upon people or mm. give them visions and premonitions because if they had had that then the people who would made them would have had the premonition that they would have been found out <laughs> and uh, Care. That's a very, very good point. <laughs> now, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I didn't have much to add to that just because I was quite happy listening, if I'm honest. <laughs> no, well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that that was the case. Uh, I didn't want it to be just a monologue, but happily there was enough interaction of you asking questions that it wasn't me just talking and talking and talking. No, I enjoyed like that. A, a dispelled myth. A genuine dispelled myth. I like it. We like it when we can genuinely debunk something, especially when uh, George Lucas has had a hand in making it famous. Yes, well, I mean, that brought in aliens and all sorts of things. Yeah. And that. Yeah. There's no wonder that many people claim there was only three Indiana Jones films. <laughs>
we need to debunk that fourth one i think yeah but um, it wasn't actually people's imagination it never existed <laughs> time now for some quick shits Oh, yes. This is the section of the show where we do some quick debunking. And it may be that they're so interesting that we do a uh, a section on them all on their own later on in the run of this podcast. My one, uh, this time, this episode, is something that some fellow podcasters of ours have actually talked about before. The guys from the Drunk Geek blog, it's essentially the clinking together of glasses as a toast it's claimed that it kind of stems from a medieval tradition in that people would poison each other by slipping the poison into the glass at the table and giving it to their intended victim who would then who would then drink it and die whoever it was would then i guess take over the throne or that particular chiefdom or whatever and the clinking together of glasses is supposed to be done so that the um, the liquid in the glasses splashes over into the other cups, therefore kind of showing like a trust in that you know right. we're all we're all clinking our glasses together. We're we're sharing the uh, the content of these glasses together so that if it is poisoned, we all die. But it's it's more of a sign of trust that it's uh, it's not been poisoned, and I, I listened to them say this, and I thought, oh wow, that that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Apparently, it's not true, <laughs> which you know is rare for the, yeah. for the drunk geek guys. It, it is, yes. Yeah. Put that on record that it's an anomaly in terms of information. <laughs> Essentially, what it is, it's it's more to do with scaring off evil spirits. In fact, it's the clinking of glasses together, like making a bit of a racket to try and scare off evil spirits, you know, in the same way that the tolling of bells is supposed to kind of disperse evil spirits from weddings and stuff like that. But yeah, so uh, also the vessels, you know, the the tank of the goblets at hand would have to be filled right to the very brim for all of this stuff to actually happen. And I don't know, civilised society, I mean, even back then, you wouldn't fill something right to the very top just to clink it together to splash it all over a table. Seems a little bit yeah. wasteful, even to the medievals, I suppose. But yeah, so it's just, it's it's basically just an expression of good wishes and health. It's not a, a forceful kind of uh, clinking together of glasses so that we share yeah. poison. It's It's actually more to do with just, it's just an expression of you know it cheers be, it's what you do it's it's like a handshake i'm gonna say it's the drinking equivalent of a handshake yeah yeah, yeah. So, and um, i know that the handshake kind of developed from the fact that you're not supposed to have a weapon in that hand so you're extending the hand, the right, I, right hand. Yeah. I suppose that is kind of where the poison myth comes from but uh yeah it's, it's just a polite thing to do and also the racket that you make when you're toasting yeah. is supposed to ward off the evil spirits rather than proving that you haven't poisoned your guests yeah. wine so so yeah because i thought that would be a good one on its own really but it turns out that it was false so i had to debunk it i'm afraid so yeah sorry to the drunk geeks you would if you were going to pour two two sets of wine for people and they were worried that you might poison them you'd you'd as a expression of fear if you'd let them choose which glass to take and then you drink from the other one well exactly uh, yeah that, that would be more appropriate to actually prove your sincerity rather than going hey let's just randomly splash them together and hope that any poison is shared so yeah so that's that indeed so do you have a quick shit to share with us the one i was considering bringing up to the table 
mm. which was about the origin of the dollar symbol. Okay. You know, the, the S with the, the line uh, through it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, which the idea of a dollar as the name dates back obviously further than the United States usage mm. of it. Um, and actually the first coins of any description to be um, called dollars, um, as it were, were from um, in the Czech Republic in the 16th century. There were okay. some silver coins. There's a few different theories about how the dollar symbol came about. Right. Now... Is it anything to it, do with the Illuminati? As it turns out, it's one of the few ones where there's actually no mention of the uh, the Illuminati. Oh, right. Turns out. So um, it's it's rare in that respect. <laughs> so... But there, there is a, a popular but tenuous belief that the actual, particularly this is popular in the United States itself, that the symbol is actually, because there's two strikes of down through the S yeah. in a proper sense, that it's actually a U superimposed over an S for US. Oh, okay. And that the, and that the bowl of the, um, the U at the bottom is actually over the top of the S, so you can't see it. So that's why it looks like two lines. I see. That's um, very patriotic of them, isn't it? Yeah, that is. Uh, and, and that's, you know, I've been championed within the last 50 years or so as a theory. And the patriots in the United States have obviously uh, grasped hold of that and, and taken that. It does kind of negate the fact that the two lines usually descend below the S. Yeah, as well as the book. I was going to so, say normally, yeah, it's... So that doesn't quite quite work. So, I mean, there is a theory that in the New World, the peso was the actual um, common currency, obviously because of the Spanish expeditions out mm. there, mm. taking a lot of the land as they did, um, including parts of the United States. Yeah. And because the, the peso was actually um, abbreviated to just a P, obviously, was in the singular, the, a small S was put up next to it, sort of raised up. And when they, when they were sort of drawn together and, and people were, were getting lazy, they, they sort of became combined. Mm. And so there was the strike through of, of the S superimposed over the P and, and the ball of the P getting lost. And that, that accounts for um, for how that would that would have gone through as, as the peso coming along. Right. Um, also linked to the um, the peso-related theory was one that it's linked to the debate of pirate fame. Oh, right. Which I... Uh, uh, Pirates being mentioned recently on a, a show by yourself and your good lady. Indeed, yes. So that's another theory in that the the, the eight over the top of the um, the P for peso hmm. um, would actually account for there being a, an S shape with the line through it. I see. Um, but again, was there that, was there actually a symbol for pieces of eight though? Well, this is the thing that there wasn't. There was for the peso itself, hmm. but as, as such as the pieces of eight, there was no real one ever recorded. I mean, there was a, a fashion at a time to striking through the, the eight, and that was the theory, but there's not really any evidence to support it. So that's, that's another kind of folklore explanation that's been created at a later date. I see. Um, there was another one a link to the Spanish as well, obviously, because of such a prominence in that region, mm-hmm. um, in the link to slavery, in that the, somebody who's brought a connotation between the abbreviation for the actual symbol being the esclavo, it's called, mm. and the name for slave, and there being a, a link between the, the, the pronunciations and the spellings of the two that you can, you can somehow forge them together and make out that it's a linking of how... The pin that used to lock slaves' chains in right. was, went through, the, went through the, the sort of an S-shaped chain 
right. and that's where the symbol came. But again, that's something that there's no actual evidence for, right. but has come about as um, it's kind of an exciting but dark theory, but doesn't hold any basis whatsoever. Ooh, uh. Another symbol that was uh, linked to it is the Pillars of um, Hercules, okay. which is um, meant to be the two pillars, and then they're linked together with the S symbol for the, for the Spanish. But again, this leaves it that it's not actually fitting with the history of the actual symbol. No, so, that's well, it's Greek, isn't it? And the Greeks didn't. Yeah, the Greeks weren't particularly um, involved in the conquest of the New World. No. In, in my understanding, no. I mean, um, I know there were some people, um, particularly in the United States, that, that don't have a, a wide awareness of um, the history of Europe and mm. as much as they do of their own country, perhaps. But um, most people can be aware that the ancient Greeks weren't involved in no. the conquest of the new world i think that is something that's widely documented yeah so that is one that um, as a quick shit is left unanswered for future exploration by um, by listeners i see righto so if we can find a listener that knows why it is that the dollar sign is an s with two lines through it then let us know yeah. at um show at ship tie and transit or um abhpod at gmail.com or alternatively, get in touch with us on the uh, on the Facebook page, of course, or Twitter, or however you fancy getting in touch with us. We're everywhere. There are multiple ways of getting in contact with your good selves. There are indeed. So my main story for this uh, this episode is about quite a famous Victorian sideshow exhibit, I suppose. Someone, called, well, nicknamed the Elephant Man. The very first kind of thing that. I noticed that was wrong with even my knowledge of the Elephant Man himself. I always knew him as John Merrick. That is a a, a common mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was actually born Joseph Carey Merrick. Yeah. So his his actual name is Joseph, but obviously um, he it was more the John name was more of a kind of nickname. Obviously, it's a shortened form of Joseph uh, that they would yeah. use in the Victorian era. I suppose in the same way that, like in the past, the kings, King Henry and, and such like King Henry the Eighth and mm. things were known commonly as Harry rather yeah, than Henry. True, because um, so um, Prince yeah. Harry at the moment, his name isn't actually Harry, is it? It's is it Henry? Yeah. Yeah, it could be. I believe yeah. so. I don't believe his actual royal name is Harry. So yeah, John Merrick was born in on the fifth of August, eighteen sixty-two, and he was born with quite severe deformities. We're not entirely sure what the uh, what what the cause for his elephantitis was, but basically, he had a deformed skull. Um, he had a, a larger than usual hand, and also his feet and legs. He had a curvature to his spine as well because of the deformities to these parts of his body. And his skin had the appearance of being thick and lumpy. There are, there are quite a few pictures of him uh, out there on the internet, uh, Joseph Merrick. And also, obviously, there was most famously uh, was portrayed by John Hurt in the, uh, in the film The Elephant Man by David Lynch. Yes, yes, very good film. Uh, which I think most people would be aware of, I would have thought. If they're not, they should watch it because it's great. But yeah, he had a pretty tough upbringing. His mother died when he was 10 and his father remarried very soon after that and quickly also rejected his son. So he left home at the age of 13 after dropping out of school 
and uh, went to work in a uh, in the Leicester Union Workhouse. Right. So he was a workhouse boy, you know, uh, much in the way Oliver, I suppose, would, yeah. uh, would be yeah, depicted, you know. Pleasant scenario. But because of his lameness, he, he didn't or couldn't work as hard as some of the other uh, boys in the workhouse. So in 1884, he contacted a showman called Sam Tor and essentially joined a travelling circus, if you like, and he became, that's where he became the Elephant Man. Uh, he was kind of paraded around with the circus and he was shown as a, like I said, a, a sideshow freak, someone to be gawped at by the Victorians. Yeah. Was, it, was, it, was it because of the, 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 the thickness and, and coarseness qualities of some of his skin? Was that the, the, the relevance to the name Elephant? Uh, yeah, basically it's the abnormality in his skin which made it look like the skin of a length. And, and uh, that's right, difficult yeah. to say. An elephant. An elephant. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's kind of where the nickname came from. Also, I suppose the enlargement of his head and his feet as well, because they were quite, because of the size of them, I suppose, you know, it's just, uh, it's the whole elephantitis thing. Yeah, yeah. They also went, he also went out on tour around Europe as well. There was also a rumour his mother was kicked by an elephant. And this is where his deformity started. Although I'm not aware that there was a lot of elephants in Leicester at that time. No, no. Apparently she was on safari. So uh, she obviously came from quite noble stock. I would imagine so, yes. Yeah. Or a zookeeper's daughter. <laughs> well, it's, it's as part of the folklore, it is actually interesting, is that? Because, again, like with the, the Crystal Skulls things, people bringing in more exotic reasoning for things happening to actually build up the story and, and add to it. Yeah, now this is it. There are so many, it's kind of Chinese whispers and there's quite a lot that we don't know about it. I mean, it was thought that he was, uh, the, the the condition that caused his, uh, his extended growth of his head and his body in general was neurofibromatosis type 1. But it turns out that there's also yet another... There's a modern syndrome that it was re-diagnosed, wasn't there? But yeah, I it was called. Uh, it's called Proteus syndrome. Right, yeah. It's a congenital disorder that causes the skin overgrowth and atypical bone development, often accompanied by tumours um, in right. over half the body. It's a very, very rare condition, the Proteus syndrome, and only 200 cases have ever been confirmed worldwide. Right. And they reckon that there's only about 120 people who are currently alive who have the condition. And yeah, it just kind of it causes overgrowth of the skin, the bones, muscle, fatty tissue, and blood, uh, lymphatic vessels. So it's possible that it's Proteus syndrome rather than the other one that I can't pronounce. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, eventually he was uh, he was kind of left by the people that he was touring with. He was kind of stranded in Belgium. They just abandoned him somewhere in Brussels, and he somehow managed to make his way back to London and it was only through chance really that he managed to get back to London based on the fact that before he left he met with a doctor called Frederick Treves and Treves had given him a card his business card he was in quite a bad way he couldn't really communicate because of the state that he'd been in trying to get back to London he had no money he had nothing so he was kind of starving, dehydrated, all the rest of it. But they found this yeah. business card on him and took him to one of the uh, London ho hospitals just off of uh, Whitechapel. 
right where he eventually stayed he he took up almost like took up residency in one of the rooms in uh, the london hospital where he he lived out the rest of his life and frederick treves attempted to kind of diagnose exactly what was wrong while also trying to give him as normal life as possible yeah i know in the film treves started kind of inviting some of the more wealthy victorians in to have tea with merrick and that kind of even though he was in a hospital and he was being looked after he was still in a way being exploited and he was still part of the freak show even though he was uh they were trying to give him this 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 kind of normal life yeah yeah of but, course it was a it was it could be on the benevolent side if you were going to be um kind to the people you could be you could set this up you could claim that they were giving him the opportunity to try and um, prove himself that he wasn't just a, an animal with no intelligence because apparently he was quite erudite and, and well and this clever. is it. yeah he was he was very uh intellectual and of course he uh he's depicted making models as well while he was there he built a church out of card while he was he was in residence at the hospital and it's this quite stunning they've still got it in a in a glass case at the london hospital i believe and it's a replica of the mains cathedral and it's just outstanding the detail that he's got there and his writing is very ornate it's 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 of the time it's you know in that kind of stylized way that the victorians wrote in he he was able to write in that way so he had quite a good upbringing and this is why i suppose they were bringing in members of the victorian upper class to come and yeah. converse with him because he's not just this monster he does have etiquette and all the rest of it now he passed away in 1890 some controversy about the the way in which he died isn't there? yeah and this is really what i wanted to get to the bottom of with my uh, with my story really he died on april the 11th 1890 aged 27 and um the official cause of death according to treves was asphyxia right he believed that um because of the size of joseph merrick's head he would have to sleep sitting up with one knee raised and his head leant on his knee and he believed that uh, merrick wanted to be so like a normal person that he effectively just laid down to see what it would be like to to sleep like a normal person and the weight of his head while he was slept down on his side was enough to kind of crush or close the windpipe and therefore right. he died of asphyxiation like that but it seems that that may not have been the case after all it would seem uh, in kind of new evidence looking at the skeleton because the skeleton is still on show in the london museum but they're saying that instead uh, it was probably due to the fact that um, his spinal cord was crushed and it was that rather than asphyxiation that killed him uh, effectively he broke his neck and the spinal cord was severed and that's due to the fact that his head effectively while he was asleep one night his head fell to the side and because of the weight of it i mean his head weighed 20 pounds and as the, yeah. the weight and the force of that dropping off his knee to one side actually broke his neck and severed his spinal cord uh, and this is 
due to more recent research by uh, a man, a doctor called Dr. Alex Vaccaro. He's a surgeon at the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. Right. He always said that the asphyxiation uh, rumour would have been false because actually to carry around the 20 pound head, his neck muscles had developed, had overdeveloped. So there was no way that the muscles were that weak that they would allow the windpipe like that. So it had to be that his head fell to one side and he broke his neck that way rather than uh, the way that's been put forward through history. And even in uh, Lynch's film as well, he just decided to lay down one night and that was that. That That was what killed him. A kind of suicide, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't uh, kind of self-aware. It probably wasn't suicide at all, which is uh, which is even more tragic, really. I think. Well, yeah, because as medical science advanced, I mean, obviously, still in those days, the the speed of advancement was quite slow compared to um, what it is now. But even in those days, they were they were already making advancements where they'd managed to do some minor corrective surgeries to his his mouth for his speech to become clearer and stuff, which yeah. was semi-successful. But um, even then, the, they were they was discovering things and they could have actually potentially done some more to help ease his life if he'd lived longer. This um, is so it. it is epic, really. Yeah, it's a huge shame because, as well, like I said, he was only 27, so it's no, it's no life, really. But like you say, with the advances within medicine and the medical kind of community at that time... Had he lived a little bit longer, he'd have probably been able to receive a lot more corrective surgery or whatever to so that he could fit in even more. But well, yeah, particularly because there was the um, a lot of medical advances came around about those times and, and mm. shortly after due to the um, the Boer Wars in in South Africa and the, the trying to treat the injured the soldiers there, and then in the First World War, which obviously was in the second decade of the twentieth um, century, and that was. You know, only a, you know two, three decades after he he had died, so he could have actually lived within that lifespan to to benefit from some of those yeah um, surgeries. Yeah, it's uh it's quite telling, really. But um, I think overall the David Lynch film shows it quite accurately. But because obviously nothing was known of uh, of his actual death at the time. Well, uh, no, I mean, it's my understanding that he's. Some of his skeleton is still in existence, but it's not exhibited. It's um, it's not exhibited publicly, but the entire skeleton is um, is in a display case in the London Hospital. Right. They've been trying to do DNA tests on it for years, but because over the years the skeleton has been cleaned with bleach, it's really difficult to get any intact DNA out of it. So, yeah, it's quite difficult to tell, really. It's, It's one of those things. He didn't just drift off peacefully into the night just to see how other people slept because i think he'd have known that he wouldn't have been able to get up well the other thing is as well that if you if you'd gone in that way mm. you wouldn't actually been asleep really would unless you were in some way intoxicated or under the influence of some substance mm. you would wake up when you started to choke yeah exactly um, there's you wouldn't, you wouldn't have actually died in your sleep you know you'd have died laying down yeah and trying to struggle against it yeah, yeah. And there was no obvious sign of struggle. That's what um, Treves's diary makes out. There was no sign of a struggle. The more recent explanation of the the breaking of the or dislocation of the neck hmm. due to a, a, the the slip um, yeah. is definitely a lot more plausible as a as a answer. Yeah. So the Lynch movie doesn't quite do it justice. 
And it's one of these myths that Hollywood has kind of uh, fed over the years, but is not 100% factual. Who'd have thought, eh? Who'd have thought Hollywood could produce something that wasn't 100% factual? <laughs> and uh, actually, because I, I decided to do this uh, mainly because of the cinematic link and the fact that your podcast is a uh, is a film-based podcast. Well, yes, I mean, yeah. I mean, I tried to tie the Crystal Skull bit to the... Um, to my one as well of so course. we've tried to, to bring in that element yeah so i appreciate it so uh where can people find your podcast our website which is hompodcast.com but we can be found on um itunes and stitcher at a history of misunderstanding podcast on facebook as a history of misunderstanding all one word and we are on twitter which is where we're most active which is H-O-M podcast. Indeed. So thank you. Yeah, give them a listen. Their show has been entertaining myself, I know, this uh, for just over a year now, I believe. You've just passed yeah, your yeah. year on the air. We have, yeah. Which is a great milestone. So congratulations on that as well. Thank you. Again, thank you very much for coming on uh, Ship High in Transit this well, episode. Hopefully much. it will uh, encourage more podcasters to uh or even non-podcasters if you want to appear on the show if you have a story for uh for some of us to talk about then please by all means get in touch at either show at ship tie and transit or uh, abhpod at gmail.com and they should it's an enjoyable experience and and i warn them that if nobody else steps up then i'll be coming back and you know who wants that well, this is it, and you're you're more than welcome back any time, of course. Well, we'll give some other people a chance first. <laughs> we'll see who else decides to step in and follow your lead. Now, I think you've uh, you've definitely brought uh, the Crystal Skulls thing was uh, completely fascinating. I've got to be honest. Oh. I uh, I turned into a listener rather than uh, rather than a contributor to that one. If I'm <laughs> no, I, I felt you you chipped in enough. So oh, fair um, enough. But no, it was a, ple- a very pleasurable experience. Been been on a podcast with you and I urge other people to take the step themselves and, and, and contribute. Either, either be with myself or Anthony or possibly even if you've got someone else that you can do a show with, like let us know. Just just let us know what you want to do, basically. We want this to be as inclusive and interactive as possible. So yeah, for this episode of Ship Tie and Transit, I've been Tom with the Elephant Man. And I've been Stephen with the Crystal Skulls. Brilliant. Thanks very much. See you again next time, whenever that shall be. Take care. Bye.